Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Simon Sweetman, and this is episode 212. Uh, I had a conversation with a woman called Samina Zera. She is a storyteller, comedian, a writer, director, actor, artist. Uh, she's many things and it was great to meet her and have this conversation now I want to say straight away um, that this conversation was put together in the sense that the producer of uh, the Red Scare Theatre Company was pushing a play um, you know promoting their new play called White Men and um, which was going to be at BATS in April and uh, and asked me who I wanted to talk to in the cast, if anyone. And I was very interested to talk to Samina because I knew a tiny bit about her and um, and thought she would be an interesting conversation. And we did have an interesting conversation. But um, I'm re-recording this intro because just after putting out an intro for this, uh, they made the announcement that the show is going to be cancelled. I'm going ahead with the podcast because the conversation about the show... Um, there's only a little element to this and also I just said cancelled but actually the show at this stage is postponed they will hope to put white men in the play um, which featured Samina and four other women playing the roles playing the white men that make up the play uh, so yeah hopefully that will reschedule for later in the year uh, and it struck me that um, I'm lucky to even be doing this podcast at the moment uh, it may be that uh, you know, news is coming to hand fresh each day. It may be that people don't want to come around to someone's house and and uh, you know shake their hand and have a conversation with them. Of course, they can have the conversation without shaking the hand. Um, but yeah, we're just we're just living and learning each day and hopefully looking after each other. So this conversation was in the can and it was a, a really great conversation. We talked about um, not just her life or the things that she's done and is doing. She divides her time between England and Wellington um, and she has graduated up, I guess, from being an actor and storyteller to moving into into comedy and stand-up comedy as another way of, of telling stories. Um, but we also talked about um, Me Too and cancel culture and problematic artists, problematic conversations, the um, religious religious skepticism uh, we had some we, we took on some big topics and I really enjoyed the conversation uh, for that aspect as much as for just getting to know Samina and a little bit about the work that she's done um, so plenty to um, digest from this um, outside of the fact that the show that is plugged a couple of times is for now on the back bench um, so I hope you enjoy this um, and my thanks as always to Tea Leaf Tea and Yesty Boys this is me talking with uh, artist, actor storyteller, comedian, writer director Samina Zera so we've only just met yeah. but we have established very quickly off tape that, that we love books yeah. and uh, I guess music and a lot of other cultural uh, TV and film yeah. and a lot of other things and you've told me this is the sort of room that you like because it, it represents a lot of the sorts of things that you're into yeah I know a tiny bit about you from um, the obvious internet um, quick search oh, did you do a quick yeah of course search? of course I always do I always do but you never want to research to I mean I do my research on people but at the same time I want to be surprised a bit okay so I know roughly what you do and some of the things you've done I guess what I want to find out um, as well as talking about the new show is is how you've you know where you've come from and how that's all happened for you so you're a person who divides your time between places 
I'm a person who has been peripatetic my whole life. Right. Um, by the circumstances, but also by choice, because I quite like it. Mm. Um, I have a short attention span, and I, <laughs> I like moving around and experiencing different places. So people. non-existentially, purely geographically, where were you when you came into this world? <laughs> okay, so I was born in Kashmir in North India. Mm -hmm. And as a baby, my father's British, so we all moved to the UK. So I grew up in the UK and I was um, about five or six when my parents got divorced. And then I was about nine when my mother decided to move us all back to, or well, move her and me back to India. So mm. I d ended up in India, in Kashmir, in my... If the dog is annoying. He's, <laughs> we he's kind of desperate for me to play with him. Yeah, it's, it's not, not going to happen. happen. He will come. So yeah. he's trying to, yeah. you know... It's all right, darling. It's never, it's never happening. <laughs> You're very cute, but no. Um, yeah, so we ended up. So I ended up back in India, not speaking any Indian languages because English was my first language. Mm. It's very odd being a foreigner and foreigner in your own in lands. my own yeah, country. Yeah. But I picked up three or four Indian languages quite quickly, as as you do when you're that age. And and then I was back and forth. And then in my twenties, I went back to live in the UK permanently, and I lived all around different bits of the UK and. Um, Last year, I came to live in Wellington. What? Why? <laughs> so I came here first in 2016 with a show. I yeah. was, it was recommended, Wellington Fringe was recommended to me by some people I met at Birth Fringe. And um, I came on a spec on three days and I absolutely fell in love. Mm. There is something about this city. I always say to my husband, who's a musician, so he gets it that this city hums on the same frequency that I do. Mm -hmm. There's an amazing art scene. It's a human scale city. People are fantastic and open. I just I just fell in love with it. It felt like coming home in a way that I've never really felt anywhere else in the world. And I got back from that tour to the UK and I, as soon as I walked in through the door, I said to Mike, my husband, I was like, we have to find a way to go and live in Wellington. And he said, can I visit at least please? I was like, okay, you can visit, but we're going. <laughs> and then we came in 2017 uh, for the Fringe with four shows. Um, gave 2018 a miss, because it is expensive to do that traveling, and we're mm. both sort of, you know, mm. artists. And then I came back last year with a show, and um, and then decided I'm, I'm coming. And I, I've got this sort of... Um, there's a there's a provision for something called an extraordinary talent visa, I think. So you can get a 30-month visa if you're prominent in your field and you have to prove that by getting, you know, yeah. evidence and letters and things. And um, I can stay and work here and after 24 months, if I'm still prominent in my field, mm. I can apply for residency. And if that happens and it's granted, then I'm going to be a Wellingtonian. That's the plan. That is the plan. So you've got it on paper in some sense that you're prominent in your field. When did oh. you... When, I know that's the goal, to always continue it's to work towards that. It's a weird thing to have. Sure. But when did you first think, yeah, if not, I am, this is what I'd like to be. You know, when did you... I when, never thought that. Right. I never thought it. Even mm. now I'm like, am I? Am I really? And what happened was that when, when I had to find that, I spoke to all the people that I'd worked with or a lot of people that I'd worked with and said, would you be willing to write a letter of recommendation and say what it was like to work with me? Mm. And actually I was marvelously startled by this. So I had 20 letters in the end from Canada and America and New Zealand and Australia and India and um, the UK obviously and France. And 
places and people that I'd worked with. And it was a bit disconcerting because when you have all these people, and obviously you've asked them because they have nice things to say about you, mm -hmm. right? And you worked well with them. And they know why you're doing it. So they'll they'll gild the lily a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so you read all these letters, a bit like being at my own funeral and listening to the eulogy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was very disconcerting. And I was like, maybe I should speak to all the people I hate and get them to write letters yeah. just to have a bit of balance. <laughs> Um, but it was very gratifying. It was lovely. And it was like, I'm, there was something beautiful about knowing that, you know, a lot of the work that I've done has been so positive and has resulted in such positive relationships. And yeah, so I was like, oh, maybe, maybe I am prominent in my view. Mm. I don't think mm. I'm that prominent. Is there, is there a first and foremost? Are you, did you come into this as an actor? Um, do you, do you what think, did I come or into a, this? A, a writer, or uh, you know? I think it's a bit of both. So I yeah. started off when I was when I was doing my masters in Delhi at uh, JNU. I started doing street theatre, and it was really just literally going and standing on a street corner with another friend of mine, and we were doing these little sort of skits, probably about things like the death penalty and marital rape, all the fun topics. <laughs> um, and as it as happens in India, very quickly, if you start doing something on a street corner a crowd will gather. Mm -hmm. I always knew that I was a performer. I always wrote, I wrote stories and I did plays, but I think all children do that. Mm -hmm. Children have an innate creativity and it gets drummed out of us by the, nature of, <laughs> the nature of capitalism. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. How do you monetize your yeah. creativity? Well, if you're not a good enough singer, you should stop singing. If you can't draw and be, you know, win awards and be hung in the Tate Gallery, there's no point drawing. And we get all this nonsense. Mm. And I never really bought into it. And I kind of, from quite a young age, sort of in my teens, the notion of being excellent was not as interesting to me as the notion of actually doing the things I love. Mm, mm. Because I never expected to be excellent. I just thought, I'll, I'll just be a normal, ordinary person, like many normal, ordinary people. And so I should do the things I love. Because mm. otherwise, what's the point? Um, and that's kind of what I've done. And I've been fortunate enough that I've been able to earn a living. It's not a great living. I have no savings. But it doesn't matter. I've been fortunate enough to live my life sort of 80% of the time on my own terms doing the things yeah. that I love. You've kept yourself alive and uh, yeah. others in your orbit. Yeah. And yeah. I've been very fortunate to be able to work with very creative, inspiring, you know, bizarre people mm -hmm. and who have brought such a richness to my life. I love it. So when you're basically in on the streets of Delhi as a, a busking activist, <laughs> sounds like. I know. It's weird. <laughs> um, what's the next step from there? So then I started working as an actor and I started working in theatres and I... But the, the thing in India is that when you do English language theatre, it's, um, it's a very hobby type of thing to do. And it wasn't it wasn't really going to work. So I, I got a day job, which was working for KLM Cargo. That was a whole other drama. And I did that for a year and a half. And then I was production managing a show, which was touring the US and the UK. And I got to the UK and I was like, I'm just going to stay. I'm, I'm British. I have a mm. British passport. I think I can make a living being an actor here. So I did that. And uh, for, for a long while, I was mainly an actor. But I also worked... Uh, my day job was working as a behavior management consultant and using role play and training. And I had to do that because I always loved live theater and mm. new, new shows. So I only ever did television and film when I was very desperate. 
not that television and film were knocking my door down or anything. Mm-hmm, Nobody mm-hmm. was desperate for me to be in their productions. Mm. But it wasn't my jam. My jam yeah. was always live. Yeah. And um, I did that for a long time. And then I was very lucky enough to work on a lot of new productions with very interesting people. And then I ended up doing a production of Midnight's Children with the RSC. And we took it, amongst other places, to New York. And we ended up playing the Apollo Theatre in Harlem. Mm. And I remember thinking, standing on that stage, that is just drenched in the history of amazing performers. Mm. I don't know if I'll ever play a better theatre. Yeah. I don't know if I'll ever top this. (laughs) And so so then we did that, we came back, and then I did a season at the National in in London as well. But it was also around the time, so I did Midnight's Children in 2003, just before the invasion of Iraq. And so that became a time after that that all the roles that were started being offered were sort of terrorist, terrorist mother, terrorist aunt, terrorist sister, terrorist daughter. And I got to a point where I thought, if I get one more audition like that, Mm. I'm going to punch someone in the face. Mm. Even though I'm a pacifist now, I'll never do that. So I thought, okay, this is is the right time to move away from this so that I don't don't want to become bitter and annoyed about this Mm. and find my own voice in terms of what I want to talk about. And... Comedy seemed a really good vehicle for that because comedy is, it's sort of, um, it's punk, isn't it? It's open. It's, it's open, yeah, it's open. yeah, you yeah, just, yeah. It's you and your voice, you can say what you want and people either listen or throw we, tomatoes at you or whatever. We were talking off tape about what is a poem and what are the rules yes. of a poem yes. and that applies to many, many things but certainly to comedy. Yeah. I guess, I guess one rule is that it's supposed to be funny yeah. and that's, that's subjective, it. right? That's so, it, yeah. yeah, if you Rules find it, your niche. It's also like we've come to understand, you know, comedy somehow got this thing of when you say comedy, you think stand-up. Mm-hmm. But actually comedy, like music, is mm. full of genres. You know, there's yeah, satire and planning and, and yeah. um, skits, skits and, and storytelling. Yeah. And yeah. really I'm a storytelling comedian and a, and a ranter. I like to call myself a ranter. Yeah. And I think that's... That is the strength of comedy, actually, and it's lovely. And then you, you, you can find your, you can find the comedy that you like, and you mm. can go and experience it. And I can watch, like for example, I hate puns, but I can watch a comedian who only does puns and still marvel at their skill mm-hmm. and how good they are and how they work an audience and how beautifully crafted it is mm-hmm. without ever wanting to go and watch an hour of puns. Like thinking you hate the banjo and then seeing the and best, then seeing some best banjo player in the world yeah, do yeah. it and going. Well, well, I can apply that to the piano or yeah, the guitar or yeah, anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, that, so I like the freedom that mm-hmm. comedy gave. So that's what I did. But I've also always been a writer. I, I've been a singer-songwriter as well. It's, um, I mean, there's some nepotism involved there because I was singing with my husband's yeah, blues yeah, band. Yeah. So, you know, but clearly... But writing the material as writing, well. Co-writing songs yeah. with him, and we still do yeah, that. And, yeah. and he's also a poet, so now mm. there's some of his storytelling shows and you know poetry shows that he's putting together that I'll be directing and I I always edit his uh, his work as well mm. so that collaboration is great and I love collaborating with people there's something quite lovely about being in somebody else's head somebody else's creative head so I started directing solo shows as well and that's fun and then I'm here and I'm doing this I, I really want to talk about white men mm, which we're doing mm. with Red Scare theatre company at BATS next month because it's so delightful and it's it's a thing that I haven't really explored before in my performance which is um, clowning because mm. there's a real element of clown in it which is uh, which is fantastic and it's a really great team because 
there's Carrie Green, who people will know because mm. she's a, a marvelous actor, but also a director and won a, a most promising newcomer as a director. Um, there's uh, the writer is Abby Howells, mm-hmm. again an award-winning yeah, yeah. playwright, yeah. and I don't know if anybody saw her show Harlequin, but just mm, beautiful chef's kiss for those who can't see. <laughs> um, and the, the whole team around it, you know, the the lighting designers award-winning Jen Lal, the the designer Lucas yeah. Neil, the and all the other women in it, Jane Waddell, um, I can't remember all their names. I'm going to uh, Micah Keel. Catherine Zolver and Emma Katene, I hope mm. I'm pronouncing that wrong. Mm. There's this cast of really powerful women playing powerful men. Yeah, so the play is called Five Men. and It's, it's called White Men. White Men, sorry. Yeah. And there are five of you and you're, you're playing the men. Yes, all the five white men. You're getting to... So look, I mean... This is the ultimate revenge for you <laughs> as someone who is nearly... Not just, not just the concept, but for you personally as someone who is nearly getting typecast... Ah, yes. You get I mean, to be, you're neither white nor male. No, you, exactly. So you, this is a great poetic revenge for you. I mean, one of the beautiful things about it is that, obviously, the whole concept of male and female is so binary. Mm-hmm. And it's such a monotheistic, feudal, capitalist, social construct to control and, you know, box people. Mm. It's, mm. it's just not a thing. So using that, using five powerful women to play powerful white men is such a beautiful subversion of that social construct mm-hmm. as well. And of course, it's talking about the nature of the end of the world and how we get here in late-stage capitalism, but it's satirizing it and sort of, you know, grotesquely clowning it. It's just beautiful. We've had such fun in the rehearsal room, and I can't mm-hmm. wait. I really can't wait to get on and, stage with it. And I'll direct people to this in the notes, but I've um, I've spoken on the podcast with Cassandra Tees from oh, right. Red Scare. Yeah. She's and, amazing. Yes, and um, and I saw a couple of their productions last year, which mm. I absolutely loved. Yeah. And uh, they brought Annie Baker's play to um, New Zealand, which she's an amazing playwright. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, that. yeah, okay. she's incredible. And um, so they're doing good things. I like I like I what the like company that. is about. Yeah. And so there's that. And so you become it sounds like you you are like you become part of that company story, you become invested in what that yes. company is about. There's yes. an ethos yes. that they are pushing. And that's very much the kind of work that I yeah. love doing. Yeah, they're like also it. doing this thing which is important for people to know, which is this Saturday the eleventh is going to be a pay what you can. Night, oh, nice! Yeah, which okay. is brilliant. Which is yes. another thing very yeah. close to my heart about accessibility. Yeah. Because so often art becomes, with the best of intentions, it becomes an elitist exercise. Yeah, Wellington Theatre is doing good things with that because they started yeah. Circuit did that thing last year, which I think they they've carried on on a few productions where you can gift tickets to people. Too, yes. Yeah. 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 Which yeah. is great. So yeah. you know, you love the theatre, you go and you find it in your household budget that you can afford to do yeah. it and that you want to, you know, help someone share that experience. So you pay for a ticket it's and beautiful. gift it. Yeah, it's amazing. Beautiful. One of the things that I'm working on now is it's, a, it's, a, it's been, a, you know, like a project for me and I'm trying to create a, an organisation which I'm going to call Magnificent Weirdos. And my the idea I have in my head, and it's still very early stages, I want to discuss it with other good people who have worked here and know... Mm. what is required is to have an organization that takes shows and workshops to rural areas and towns and cities that don't normally get Mm. the wealth of artistic participation that Wellington has. Mm. And what I want to do is create a landscape New Zealand wide of 
So, you know, the magnificent weirdos roll into town once a month. There's a weekend of shows and workshops. They're all koha or pay what you want. Mm. And so that in 10 years' time, you've built a generation of people who've had access to that. And it's, it's, and the idea is to bring, bring people in. So instead of having these workshops in like maybe, you know, normal community centers, you have it in Marais or you have it where people are comfortable, like who needs it? What do they need to make arts accessible and make those voices heard that are not heard in the still very Eurocentric middle-class just realm of the arts? I want to hear those. I want, I want to hear people who don't normally get into the mainstream or get boxed into, you know, oh, this is Mario Pacifica or the disabled people or the women or the older or the younger. Mm. I want them all to be part of the mainstream. And how do you do that? You build it from the grassroots by giving access to people. And then once they've done that or they've been part of a workshop or they've seen a thing, they're, they're a magnificent weirdo. And if somebody there is inspired and goes, I want to do a show, they have access to the mentorship of all the people that will mm. choose to be involved. And it'll be a very cooperative organization in that way. But the artists will be properly paid. But the people experiencing it should get it for free or for whatever they can afford. Yeah. So I'm just in the process of putting that together and I'm very excited by it because I yeah, think it wow. would be an amazing, just an amazing, delicious thing to do. Mm. Mm. So that's something, um, haha, mwahaha. <laughs> that's, my, that's my latest plot. Yeah, yeah. Plot now, twist. I want to talk to you just briefly uh, about your husband and how, and, I mean, you could, because you hinted at it and because I've seen him perform, I haven't met him, but I saw him performing he's one of those people that he introduced himself and started performing and I thought I'm gonna like this <laughs> before he started yeah. and I did and I thought one day I'll have a chat to that man and we will yeah. have many things in common yes um so how have you guys co-navigated this shared creative life you know you talked a bit about collaboration but it can't always be easy when the rent's due or the travel funds that are required or whatever. Yeah, it's not. But, you know, the, so we made a decision a while ago. Well, how did you meet and get into, uh, you know? We met on a blind date. This right, was supposed okay. to be a one-night stand. Yes. <laughs> I'm very much a person who would be happy to be single my whole life. Yeah. Um, and I always say to him, you ruined my life by being <laughs> so amazing and making me fall in love you with you. You ruined my life, thank you. Yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> Um, he had, uh, when I met him, he had three children, the youngest of whom was seven. I have never wanted to have children. So, the, you know, really upheaval. Perfect but, storm of everything wrong. Yes. But as soon as we met, we immediately started talking about creativity and music and what it means and what's important. And so for many years, he was an educator and it, uh, he worked with children with behavioral difficulties because, of course, he had to pay the bills and bring up his mm. children. So when I met him and we started living together, and negotiating family life. We um, we had a four-bedroom house because of the three kids, whatever. The minute the youngest one went to university, we were like, bye! And we <laughs> sold the house and bought a, <coughs> excuse me, a two-bedroom place without a mortgage. That immediately made it easier for us. Mm -hmm. So as we always say, we have no savings, mm. we have no fallback position, but this is what we do. Mm. And we do the thing that feeds our souls, I guess, is a sort of a mushy way of putting it mm, mm. but it's very very true and so we we collaborate but we also have a very separate yes. very separate yeah. lives so just in a very practical way because i'm here on this kind of visa when he's here he can't work at the moment because he's on a tourist visa 
So we have to organize a visa for him that allows him to work when he's here. But we're always going to be based between the UK and here, and he'll go back and forth much more than I will, mm. because his mum is there, and our, you know, our kids are there, and so we'll always want to be going back and forth. And we have to manage it very carefully, because that's a very long flight. Mm. And it's a, the imp environmental impact of that flight is, it does, you know, plays play, on, you. Plays yeah. on me as well, yeah, because yeah. it's a very long flight. So if we make a way to only do that once a year between us. So that means we'd be spending time apart as well. But of course you have FaceTime and you have things like that. Well, it's perfect for someone who didn't want to get married. <laughs> and, and talking again about best of both worlds. <laughs> best of both worlds. My, my dream was always, let's live next door to each other. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he was like... Diego Rivera. Yeah, the, yeah, Frida Kahlo, Diego yeah. Rivera. Perfect. Yeah, but, build a bridge. <laughs> but he's... Um, yeah, I mean, he is... He's one of the most amazing and magnificent men I've ever met and so it's very hard to keep him at any distance for any length of time which is very annoying uh, <laughs> and he's a beautiful musician and poet and I I love I love the I love his creativity and he loves mine and what's what's lovely about it is that there's always been that idea that the relationship is about you know lifting the other person as much as you can and that's quite extraordinary. That kind of unconditional love is quite extraordinary and unusual. Mm. And I think we're both very lucky to have that as well. Mm. Um, I don't ever discount it. Even though quite often when he annoys me, I will plan his funeral in my head. Just to get it out of my system. <laughs> I plan some very good funerals for him. Uh, he knows. He's sort of like, he, well, he, he quite often go, are you planning my funeral in your head? And I'll be like, yes. And he'll be like, is it a good one? And I'll be like, yes. He's like, fine, right, great. Carry on. <laughs> well, he's not the only one that knows. You've told people that from the start. I have. I have. People have taken that away and gone, yeah. that's such a good idea. And I'm like, it really is. Because if you can get it out of your yeah. system and calm down, yeah, yeah, yeah. then you can have a proper conversation and fix whatever's annoying you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've always believed, and this is slightly different and nowhere near as intellectual as that, but, you know, I've always been a big believer in... Um, confronting these things so that you move yes. past them I I would say that I'm not a violent person at all yeah. and uh, yet I've variously loved mixed martial arts <laughs> the, the clowning aspect of pro wrestling box, oh, yeah. boxing martial yeah. arts films yeah. anything to do with violence on any level in terms of an entertainment you know, uh, that delivered through entertainment, I love, and I overdosed on the most, you know, despicable forms of horror f movies. Oh, I love crime, crime, and true, true crime, crime, and crime is fiction. the thing now that we all love it. Yeah, absolutely. But also, you know, I think the notion that there is not darkness inside all of us mm -hmm. is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And when you deny your own darkness, mm. you are setting yourself up to freak out at some point and do something unspeakable. I think it's much better to go, this is my particular darkness, let mm -hmm. me explore it, let me own it, let me love it, and then let me control it, or let absolutely. me find a relationship with it. So I know there is a dark, I'm absolutely a pacifist, and I, for me, you know, violence is not a solution to anything, mm -hmm. but in my, you know, there are moments when I will be like, I just, oh, I'm so angry, mm -hmm. and I will let that anger wash over me and think about all the horrible things I could, in a fantasy, do to somebody, and then move, because I know I wouldn't do it in that's real a life. Re that's a reset. It's a reset. Yeah. And interestingly, I was at a dinner party, this about 15 years ago, 
And one of the guests there was a psychiatrist. And I was talking to him about, you know, committing the perfect murder. And we were having this, like, <laughs> hilarious conversation about it. And I said, oh, I probably shouldn't tell you this. You're a psychiatrist. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was, was, was going to say, yeah. if you just... Oh, no, 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 I did. By the way, what do you do? <laughs> but do you know what he said to me? He said, look, I never worry about people who fantasize mm-hmm. in that way or have those mm-hmm. violent fantasies. He said, the people I worry about are the ones who read romantic fiction because they have no clue what real life is bringing. And so when real life hits them, they can't cope. (laughs) Mm. But the people who already have this kind of slight or whatever understanding Mm. of of what is what is the human condition really, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Uh, He said, I worry less about them because they're better able to cope with reality when it hits them. And I was like, ah, phew. All right, then I'll just continue to have violent fantasies. Um, I I loved you bringing out that thing about the fact, you know, that there's a darkness in everyone. Uh-huh. I, I'm really interested at the moment in the in the the new twist in the Louis C.K. story because oh, you is know, there a new twist? well, just when I say the new twist, oh, <coughs> I said to someone the other day, I think he's going to be the first person, perhaps prominent person, to uncancel himself. And the guy said to me, without being aware of the magnificent pun he was about to say, he said, oh, really? Do you think he can pull it off? Uh, which uh, I was like, man, you need a writing job for him. <laughs> but, um, and I'm not saying this as any sort of advocate or fan of him either way, but what I thought was interesting was one of his things that he's come out with as he started to do shows again and gather momentum was he, he, one of his lines is, um, everyone's got a thing. You just happen to now know what mine is. Yeah. Which are, and so I think that, as he moves towards that stuff in his routine, that's going to potentially become quite profound. Um, I don't know if I would agree with that. It's a difficult one because there's mm. a couple of things there. Is that he's trying to rehabilitate himself mm-hmm. without doing any of the doing work. Doing the work, sure. So I'm a great believer this is, in redemption. This is why I said I'm not an advocate. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like. So I'm a great believer in redemption. Mm-hmm. And I agree with that idea that we can all do terrible things mm-hmm. and we can come back from them. But you cannot come back from them on your terms. You mm-hmm. come back from them on the terms of the people that you have harmed. Mm-hmm. And until you let go of that sort of arrogance and that kind of, well, well, I've been out, you know, I've been away for a year mm-hmm. and you want to cancel me and what about this and what about that? I'm sort of like, nobody cares. You're mm-hmm. an entertainer. Mm-hmm. You're one human being. There are lots of fantastic entertainers out there. Let's give them a push-up. Yes, and saying that you lost however many million when you, when you still have the shirt on exactly. your back and the capacity to pull some of it back isn't And also, let's much. talk about all the women who left comedy because of what he did. Let's talk about all the fantastic performers we never saw mm-hmm. or that had, you know, who had to negotiate and navigate that world and fell to the wayside. Or let's talk about the amazing women who got past it and still did well. Mm-hmm. I'd much rather spend my time on those stories because they're more interesting to me. An entitled white guy who's been, who sort of failed up and was a very good comedian mm-hmm. is not that interesting to me. Yeah, yeah. And actually, it's, a, it's funny within comedy and within... So he tried to come to the UK, by the way. Right. And he was Post in... Recently, oh, yeah, this was recently, yeah, yeah. last yeah. year. Yeah. And he... So he was doing these tours and he, and he booked... Mm. He, booked himself into a club in Manchester and somebody found out and was like, oh, and, and it was selling out. Of course mm, it was selling mm, out. Mm. And then a load of women comedians 
and you know other sort of um, also some trans comedians, non-binary comedians, mm-hmm. and men as well, um, called up the and but prominent ones, mm-hmm. you know, like who's who not doing a club would affect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Called up the promoter and went, "That's your choice to have him there, but then but you don't have us ever yeah. book me again." Yeah, and it got cancelled. Mm. And there were a lot of people who went, ah, this is muzzling free speech and this and that. But it's, but it's not. It's people voting with their feet and going, if you're going to give that person time, I don't want to share that stage. Mm-hmm. It's your choice. It's not muzzling free speech. And I was very proud of that moment of a collective activism that recognized the harm that he had done and the recompense he has still not made. Because mm-hmm. he's still slightly, his narrative is still, yeah, I was a bad guy and everybody's bad and like why am I paying for my badness and you're not and it's sort of like mate that's not an apology and you haven't done the work Mm. to come back now on the other side of that when the Harvey Weinstein stuff came out Kevin Smith who made Clarks and yeah 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 who was a who was a little cog in the Weinstein machine right and didn't really know anything well owes his career to owes his career to him to but the he's success, kind of yes. he's an indie filmmaker yeah that's right George someone George was Clooney gonna someone was gonna discover him or not yeah. and it happened to be Weinstein that's be right Weinstein. yeah 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 but his response to that yes was to go all the money I've ever made from that goes to domestic violence yeah. charities all the money that ever comes from it goes there yes I am I'm embarrassed and disgusted that I made a career on Profited the back of this it. man yeah, yeah. and for the rest of my life I will be giving this much money to do that's a response yeah, to a man yeah. who probably didn't know what Weinstein was because yeah, he was yeah. in his inner circle. Yeah, yeah. I have a lot of respect for that man. Yeah, agreed. Less respect for the likes of Louis C.K. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. also for the likes of George Clooney and stuff who go, oh, well, he never did it in front of me. Like, <laughs> piss off me. Yeah, yeah, if you yeah. didn't know that was going on. Yeah. Of course you did. A couple of uh, years ago, I did a show in Edinburgh called Tales of the Unacceptable. And there's a very fantastic comedian who's also very absurdist, clowny, beautiful guy called Simo Mace and he called me up January of that year and said look I know that this is happening mm. and I'm not going to be the guy who when it all comes out in public goes oh well we all knew but these are not my stories to tell what do I do and I was like well let's just let's do this let's do a show that takes real life testimonies anonymizes them and we just put it out there so that we can get a temperature of where our industry is so we spent four and a half months gathering testimony and you know, I it was the hardest four months of my life listening to these women talking about the shit that they've been through and stuff like that. And and still having the guts to carry on and be there. And so we just put on the show and it was literally directly the testimonies. And then in between, we did little comedy skits to lighten it. Mm. People were crying, people were weird. And afterwards, people were talking to us about... And a couple of older comedians said to me, my God, I've never... You know, I've never seen... Are, this, are these people I know? What can I do about it if I don't know who it is? And I was like, what you can do about it is be present in a green room. And when somebody is a bit drunk and does something off, don't go, oh, that's just him when he's drunk. Pull him up and use your, use your status. Use the fact that you're a white man. Use the fact that nobody's going to not bring you to your clubs because you're famous at what you do. Mm. To draw the line in the sand and say, not not in front of me, don't do that in front of me. So that in, we get to a point where, like when people say to me, oh, but you know, people do things like that when they're drunk. I'm like, how drunk do you have to be before you kick a puppy in the face? And they're like, oh, we never do that. It's like, okay, I want this to be as unacceptable as kicking a puppy in the face. Mm-hmm. To, you know, put a, put your hand on a woman's butt or to, 
to sexualize her, to demean her, to do any of this stuff that you think is just jokes. Or to use your power in any way. It's not just women, it's also young men experience this from older men, as we know with Kevin Spacey. Mm, mm. Um, it's people who yes, are Yes, he not... had one of the worst responses ever, didn't oh, he? Oh, gosh! <laughs> like, ridiculous. It's also... There's other things that come into play. You know, suddenly if you're disabled, if, you, if you're poorer, so that you have to take the jobs that you can get, you can't say no when there's somebody on the bill that you think might attack you or is... or triggers you. You know, if you... Class is a huge thing in this. So when we're doing this intersection, this activism about Me Too and about all the things that power structures put in, it needs to be intersectional. Because if it's not intersectional, it's not complete. So that all of us, all of us are on a continuum of privilege. I'm very much on that continuum. So you can look at me and go, oh, you're a woman of color. That's, that might be a disadvantage. It is. But I'm also middle class. I've, you know, I've, I've been to private school. I'm able-bodied. I'm, um, I'm neurotypical. I'm, I present a cishet. I don't threaten anybody as I walk down the street in that way. So that gives me a position of privilege that I need to be aware of and I need to use to advocate for the people I need to hold that line mm -hmm. for somebody else. There'll be things that are difficult for me and somebody else will hold the line for me. And that's how we do this. And yes, we allow for redemption. And yes, we allow for... The point is to make things better so that we can all do what we do and enjoy it with our audiences, with each other. And we don't allow power... We don't allow people to use their power corruptly. Mm. You know? Mm. And we the gatekeepers are gatekeepers who do this with a good intent for everyone in concerned. Well, when does that crossover into replicating the behaviour that it's seeking to call out? Um, I am thinking of this recent story about Woody Allen's memoir getting, yeah. getting postponed indefinitely, yeah. cancelled essentially. But the publisher that was going to take, you know, that had paid for it and scheduled it, um, decided to, to drop it. Yeah. But the reason they decided to drop it was because, and this is a very tricky story, was because Ronan Farrow, who is his son, yeah. had, had published through them. Yeah. And his book that he had published through them is basically him advocating yeah. for the rights of others and yeah. seeking to restore justice and exposing me to. But the way he went to his publisher and used a threat... Is that not a form of bullying? I mean, did he did he use a threat? Did he just say that it's not acceptable for you to publish he said, the he, person that I'm... That no, he's, he about? said, I won't work for you again. You'll never publish me again. Which is which he's allowed to do. I'm not saying that's I wrong. don't think that's bullying. I think if somebody... I'm is, just asking the question, you know, I'm just curious. Oh, yeah, yeah, I think yeah. we absolutely yeah, yeah. have to make sure yeah. that we don't cross that line mm. and become what we seek to... And there must, there must be instances of that. Yeah. yeah, but I think also people are well within their rights to say, I don't want to be associated with you. 100%. If you are going to promote this man that I have said, and many have said is a pedophile. Yeah. I mean, the man married his daughter, like there's no question. So, you know, if, if you're going to say that, I think you, we have the right to say that. And that notion of being tolerant of intolerance is a kind of, it's a weird one, isn't it? There's a cognitive dissonance to that. And I, I don't think being intolerant of intolerance is necessarily intolerance. But you're absolutely right that at no point do we get complacent, mm -hmm. which is why we all call each other out. 
I'm much more likely to question someone whose opinion I agree with mm -hmm. than to question some, the motives of someone whose opinion I agree with yeah. than I am to question the motives of somebody whose opinion I disagree mm -hmm. with. Because quite often I may disagree with an opinion, but I can see and respect where a person is coming from. I still won't agree with it. But quite often as well, there's somebody who has the same opinion as me. Yes, but how they've... But how they've come to it yeah. is not something... And I'm, what they're representing, uh, yeah. yes. So, for example, you, I mean, like, if you take a person in the public eye, you can take somebody like Richard Dawkins, for uh -huh. example, who's an amazing scientist and has done some fantastic yeah. work. But he's a huge Islamophobe and an yes. absolute sexist. So... When he says, and, I and, hate and also, not to trivialise it, just the way he responds to stuff, a bit of a fucking dick, <laughs> right? Because he has an because arrogance. smugness, yeah. This is the smugness and yeah. arrogance of going, yeah. I'm more intelligent yeah, than you, yeah, yeah. so I'm better than I'm you. I'm belittling you. No, yeah. mate, yeah. you're not. Yeah. So when he, you know, when he says, I hate religion and I hate Islam and Islam is the worst religion, I'm like, mate, I also hate religion mm -hmm. and I will find a lot to criticise about Islam. But you are not saying you hate Islam because you hate religion. Mm. You're saying it because you're you're making Islam worse than every other monotheistic religion. And that's what I take issue with because where is your motivation there? Well, it's a bit like, I mean, forgive me if this is a, a crude metaphor, but it's a, it's a bit like being introduced to KFC and deciding that all chicken's awful, right? Like, exactly. In, in terms of the understanding yeah. of, and I would put myself in that category, I don't know enough about Islam to, to... But you don't even have to know about no. religion. Of course, religion is... If you think religion is faulty, religion is faulty. Yeah. I hate religion. Yeah. But I'm not prepared to hate religious people. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Because faith is a personal spiritual journey. Yeah. We live in those constructs. People find comfort where they can. He, the human condition is difficult. We're born, we die, we have to make some sense of the life we have in between. I'm not going to judge people for that. The constructs of religion and the politics of religion, I have real issues with. Mm. But also, and I said this in a show as well, while Desmond Tutu is alive in the world, I can't hate religious people. I mean, the guy's well, gorgeous. This you know, is, what are you going to do? I was thinking about this the other day, that, that concert footage that was found finally and, and put out into the world as a documentary last year, Amazing Grace, the Aretha Franklin. I haven't seen it, but yeah. I've only just seen it. it recently, but I, I've lived with the, uh, the recorded album for, for many years and, and read a book about it and obviously a fan of her but I was watching it and I was thinking you know as that toured film festivals probably the audience that it's targeting probably among them would be many that would tell you that they can't support religion at all yeah and this beautiful concert film with this beautiful music only happened because of religion yeah you know, yes, she's an extraordinary talent, but everything that fed into her to make her what she was yeah. and what she addressed in that performance was about religion. I mean, I think she would have done it with or without religion. She'd done, she did many great performances, yeah. but that one in particular. So an interesting, I became an atheist when I was nine, mm -hmm. and my family are pretty devout Muslims. Mm. And it was, you know, my grandfather, I was very close to my grandfather, and he was a very devout Muslim. And I was very worried about telling him because I thought he'd be angry with me. Mm. But I couldn't lie to him, and I just didn't want to read the Quran anymore, and I just thought it made no sense. So I told him, and I said, Look, um, I don't believe in God, I don't want to read the Quran. I was reading it with a teacher or whatever. Yeah. And he was reading in Arabic and I didn't understand Arabic and he wouldn't explain it to me and I was like, this is nonsense. So I said to my grandfather, I don't want to read the Quran anymore and I'm not, I, I don't believe in God. And I was very scared and I, my heart was beating. I was nine, you know, I can remember still feeling a bit because at that age, everything is life and death. And my grandfather said to me, you have to read the Quran because only ignorant people reject what they do not know. Mm. I will get you an English translation and you will read it. 
And he's, then he said to me, he said, you know, God doesn't need you. You may one day find you need God and he'll be there. But God doesn't judge you by your prayers. He judges you by your actions. He said, there are some values that you will learn and that you will have that we will give you and you will live your life by them. And if you ever betray those values, there's no punishment God can give you that you will have to live with yourself. So I'm not worried about you. Be a good person. It's more important than being a religious person. And I think at the time, the main thing I felt was just relief that he didn't hate me. Mm. But the older I've got, the more I look back at that and think, you, I, he saved me from being bigoted towards relig religious mm. people. Mm. Because there's such wisdom in what he said. And his, I think whatever religion he would have been, or if he didn't have religion, he would have been the man he was. But he found his comfort or construct or rituals within that religion. That's fine by me. I don't mm. really care. Mm. So, yeah. So when somebody like, although I have extreme opposition to religion and its political sort of yes. control mechanisms, yeah. I I will I will never judge a religious person yeah. on the basis of the fact that they're religious. I'll judge them by their actions, but mm. not because of being religious. You'll be slightly disappointed, maybe, but you'll keep that to yourself. <laughs> don't you have I'm that? Like, don't you oh. have that feeling though? That's what I do. Oh, oh, they believe that. Yeah, oh, I, I do. I don't quite, you know, I, I have that. But you don't go and tell the world, oh, I didn't realise this. <laughs> but also when I think that about someone and I go, oh, how can you believe mm. this crap? Mm. I also understand that that's my problem, yeah, not yeah, theirs. Yeah, exactly. And there is, a, there is a sort of a, I'm being righteous about my own beliefs. Yes. Like there's there's no way yes, you're going to convince gonna say, me. We're going to say, yeah. we're trivialising... Um, what other pe what motivates yeah. other people and yeah. n and not recognizing that in ourselves exactly you so, know? so what is the, I have a belief system as well yeah. it's a very strong belief system it doesn't re rely on a on a man in the sky going you off to hell you off to yeah. heaven and just the kind of sort of emotional blackmail that he uses to get everything done I find that weird but I, it's a very strong belief system nonetheless and if somebody doesn't agree with it that's their right mm -hmm. but I would hope that they don't diminish me or demean me because of it and so mm. I'm not prepared to do that to anybody else no matter mm. what their beliefs are and I'm always aware as you say I don't I don't pretend that I you know just Have go oh it's fine yeah, it's, yeah. it's fine if you're religious I yeah. do always feel slightly like Ugh. yeah that's a shame <laughs> that's a shame but also I recognize that that is that is a fault in me yeah then. that's right yeah 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 and being so, able to yeah being able to look past that that idea that makes you think oh that's disappointing being able yeah. to look past that and go well but what has this person done that i exactly. am amazed by exactly or how open am i to yeah communicating with them or following them whatever it is yeah it's never yeah. going to make me better than anybody else that's right that i'm not religious and they are it's never yes and that's been the big problem you know i i, I went through a, f a phase a few years ago of of reading those books by, I guess, what, what would you call them, the new atheists, you know, the Dawkins and the, uh, yeah, you know, all of that stuff, and, and, and interesting people like Sam Harris in terms of how they have changed oh, their... Yeah, yeah, totally, so but, totally, but the, the, the you know, the, <laughs> but yes, the, the spiritual where you're coming from, yeah. problem that he's had, I, I can't keep up with following him, but those books um, and Hitchens, all of that yeah. stuff that seemed to come out at the same time, I, I made a point of reading them. And then I sort of thought, you know, it's exactly what you said before about I broadly agree with yeah. their takes on this Absolutely. subject. Yeah. But do I want to be like 
in the account? No, they don't. They're not. They're not coming at it from the angle that I am, and I don't want to be just sort of put yeah. in that group as oh you don't believe in religion and you don't follow it so yeah. you must be like them I just don't like that sort mm. of notion that you can be that arrogant to think you're better than somebody else well the huge irony too is that it basically comes across as a form of preaching yes it does doesn't <laughs> you know, it that's the, that's the thing it's like, it's like if you don't believe this you're not good enough there's well, a devout aspect yeah. to yeah. the new atheists any moment, anytime there's blind faith yeah Anytime yeah. there's blind faith, it yeah. doesn't have to be God. You just, anytime that questioning is not allowed, mm. you're in a very sticky situation. So because I'm, place. because I'm enjoying this conversation, uh, and because you're married to a musician and you, you're a musician yourself, yeah. you're a singer, what's, your, what's been your read on um, how music has really, largely, the music industry sort of escaped and sidestepped Me Too versus the film industry? Has it? hasn't it <laughs> I mean so I mean I'm sure there are terrible people out there who are doing horrible things I think because the gatekeepers are mainly men still mm, mm, mm. whereas the other industries are getting better at yes. having more diverse gatekeepers yeah and these things always change when the gatekeepers change the other thing is about it is that I think capitalism has a lot to answer for if there's anything I hate it like more than anything else in the world it's this kind of notion that everything is commodified and the commodity is the most important thing and how much, what price you can put on something. So I guess if people are going to lose money because of a band or lose whatever, they'll, mm. I guess, yeah, you're right because what's his name? The um, the rapper, R. Kelly. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. He had that whole documentary yes. stuff which I haven't watched because it looks so disturbing. It does. Um, and all of that kind of stuff that gets pushed to one side, yeah, well, I don't know. I don't know. I think it is because the gatekeepers are mostly men. But as we move forward, I hope that... My hope is more than, like, getting individual people and going off to jail you, which should happen and, you know, is good for the people that they've harmed. The thing I would like to see happening is a cultural shift in our social consciousness. Mm -hmm. Because all of these things become unacceptable, not when they're against the law, when people go to jail. They become unacceptable when they become unacceptable to us morally so you know cannibalism why don't we do cannibalism because the thought of it makes us you know feel mm. horrendous why don't we just piss ourselves on the bus because oh my god how you know that's terrible you you just wouldn't do it mm. no matter what state you're in and that's where i'd like us to go as a society and i think the way you do that is by getting getting to kids early Mm. getting there early and talking about it and using restorative justice in the early stages. So when you knit things in the bud, there's a beautiful um, story about, and I think I may be getting this wrong, but it, I think it's the Maasai do this, but it's within Africa, within tribal situations, and I'm sure it's in a lot of different tribes. When a child does something unspeakable, like hits another child or does something bad, the tribe gather the child in the middle of a circle and everybody goes around the circle and they tell the child one thing that's extraordinary about them. Mm. And I think there's something beautiful in that, of, you know, in the early stages, obviously not when they're beyond help yeah. and not when they're psychopaths, but letting, letting people know that they have something to lose. Mm. Here, are they, all, here are all the things you do great. Here are all the things that are wonderful about you. Yeah, why would you be this person yeah, yeah, yeah. when you're all of these amazing things? Yeah, we're not, we're not actually going to talk about the thing that's not yeah. making you amazing because yeah. we don't rate that. Yeah, 
That's yeah. terrible. Yeah. But these are the reasons we value you. Mm. And I think when you do that and you give people a reason to be, you know, to have something to lose, to be part of a community, to have the love and respect of other people, you stop this happening. Mm. And again, I will come back to sort of monotheism and capitalism and feudalism and commodifying human beings and human behavior that allows for that kind of isolated thing of going, well, I have power, I can do what I want. Mm. And I have no responsibility to my fellow human beings. And if I'm okay, everything's okay. Like this whole thing of hoarding toilet paper during Korea, which is just bizarre. Yeah. But if you think about your actions, you're hoarding because you can afford to. Mm -hmm. So you're leaving people who are who are poor, too poor to buy in bulk. They can't get anything. People who may be at risk because they're immunocompromised. You've taken all the wipes. You've taken yeah. all the gel. You've taken. You don't care. Yeah, you're Enough. being you're being selfish because you're yeah. not you're not recognizing that yeah everyone. But also you're to... being selfish because we live in a society that applauds that. Yes, and it's also a very safe version of being selfish because yeah. if the I don't know how this got out, but if the advice was or whatever you call it, if if the trend was to hoard something more perishable and yeah you know you wouldn't get i mean it's a simple fact you're going to go through all the toilet paper you buy we're going yeah. people need it you know yeah. like it's there isn't apart from wipes there isn't an alternative to it yeah there's some form of toilet paper is in every house and every loo so you you might have the biggest mountain of it and that might make you It'll, think you're yeah. better but you are going to get through it you know, imagine if you were being asked to buy something that you're like, hang on, I don't, we're never going to need that much of that. That would stop, right? Yeah. So it's a weird, it's a safe version of selfishness. Yeah. I know that's a complete side issue, but... No, but it, it is. But it's also sort of like, it's the it's the short-term thinking and the, yes. the yeah. applause that we get for going, oh, I put my family first and I put my... So where does that stop then? And that kind of thing of going, my people, my city, mm. my nation, my, 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 instead of going, we... At the end of the day, we're human beings. We live in a global world. We all belong to one another. It doesn't matter if it's your child or your parent mm. or the stranger on the street. We all belong to one another in mm. some way. And until we recognize that, mm. we're not going to get past this. It's one of the things that, like, I don't have a huge understanding of Maori culture, but it's one of the things that I've been watching with the land stuff that's mm. been going on and the mm. and my, my whatever exposure I've had to Maori culture and this notion of togetherness and working with community and kind of just yeah I, I find it I find it bizarre that as human beings we don't have enough understanding even of our own survival to understand that we need each other to survive mm. it's crazy mm. like, what are we doing yeah but yeah. also you know life is short and we'll all die so it's fine <laughs> so there's no shortage of things for you to talk about on a stage but I read that you did a thing that is quite common in comedy. You were basically petrified of the idea of standing on a stage, <laughs> and 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 I'm amazed by how common the story is. People throwing themselves and and acting as well. People throwing themselves into the situation, and I guess those of us. I mean, I've I've stood on a stage. I've I've done some performances, but I'm not a comedian. And so anyone who's not a comedian or not an actor often wants to wonder why a person who suggests that's frightening, why the fuck would you put yourself in, in range of the bullet? <laughs> uh, for the thrill. 
for the ability to conquer it. Mm. Like one of the things for me was when I was thinking about how can I how can I find my voice? What can I do? It needed to be something slightly dangerous and not comfortable. Um, I mean, look, I have a very thick skin, and I thought the worst that can happen is people will think I'm shit. It's fine; they'll all be strangers. What do I care? I'm mm. um, so I don't mind that. But the idea of it was like, can I do this? I don't know if I can do this. What'll happen? I'll look like a complete fool. And there's something quite um, lovely about that. And then when you get on the stage and you do hold the audience, and you're in that moment with this is also why I love live performance so much. You're with this load of people and they're hanging on to what you're saying or they're interacting with you and you've got this whole and you, you have this experience together. It's the greatest buzz. Mm. It's such a beautiful moment of human connection to be able to make people laugh. Amazing. How lovely is that? Mm. Like I spend quite a lot of time making people angry. So when I can make people laugh, I will take that as a win. Do you carry with you a memory of that very first time on stage when you're through performances? No, not really. I just remember what it was like. I remember getting onto that stage and going, oh, this feels like home. Mm. This is amazing. I'm still slightly flummoxed by the fact that I can stand on stage for an hour and just rant at people and they will stay, they will pay for the privilege and then they'll tell me afterwards how much they loved it. Is this real? It's a little bit of like, uh, what do you call it, imposter syndrome? Yeah, that yeah, you yeah. Get, you go, well, that well, feels that feels just about every artist. Yeah, yeah. and it should. And, and I was going to say, I, I, I'm thinking about it a lot lately, and how you know acknowledgement of it is necessary. Yeah. Not you know when you're talking about facing fears, like trying to understand and I guess grapple with imposter syndrome is really important, rather than yeah. just push it back I'm yeah. going to I'm going to conquer that by not thinking yeah. about it we conquer things by thinking about them yeah, yeah. and also by understanding that yeah. at the end of the day you are what you are you're not better at it than anybody else you're mm. not worse at it than anybody else mm. you're doing what you're doing because you're compelled to do it and you love doing it mm -hmm. and that's okay but it's also not brain surgery it's also not you're not you know you're not saving the world in a very practical way you might be saving the world by putting questions out there and that's part of the fabric of saving the world mm. is making people think about things or making people laugh, giving them some relief, you know, creating community, whatever it is. But it's also good to remember you're one grain of sand on a beach with just identical grains of sand. That's what we all are. So really don't take yourself too seriously. Tell me about being a storyteller, like using that title. How does someone get that title and what does it mean? Gosh, I think I've always thought of myself as a storyteller mm. from a, quite a young age. When I was about eight or nine, I used to make um, little uh, puppets with lollipop sticks yeah. and do little shows for my family and force them to watch. They were not amused. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, th I, I think that's... It's because I love it as well. I love stories. I love people telling me a story. When I watch a thing, when I listen to music, when I read a book, whatever it is, I want I want the, the story behind the story as well. And that's what I always wanted to do, be able to tell stories. And because I do a lot of different things, so, mm. you know, I write and I direct and I sing and I, I'm a comedian and an actor, and all of those things for me is about telling people stories. Mm. So... Mm. Yeah, I guess it's just a way of classifying myself within my genre of going, mm. 
you know, what kind of comedian am I? I'm a storyteller comedian. What kind of music do I do? I, it's blues and folk and protest poetry. It's all stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Stories and activism, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess I've just instinctively done it. I've not thought about it, really. Yeah, yeah. But in terms of um, gathering stories to tell... Yeah. As opposed to write, I mean that's a form of writing. Yeah. But the the more traditional story gatherer, how how did you come to understand that, like as something to do? I think it's because it's what in, interests me. Mm. What always interests me is making sense of the world. And how do you make sense of the world except from different perspectives and different experiences and other people's stories? Mm. So I was very aware at a young age that my my particular story was a story. And because, as I said, when, when we got back to India, my mother's family is sort of upper middle class, right? So they're quite wealthy. But you cannot live in India and not see the division mm. and the difference. Another thing about India is that India has every religion under the sun. So you will meet different people with a different perspective and quite a strong different perspective all the time. Mm. There are 23 national languages. There's lots of... So... It, to me, I'm always like interested and fascinated by somebody else's experience and I want to hear that story. I do this thing which a lot of people do, is if I'm on a train and a train goes through a residential neighbourhood at night and the lights are on in people's houses and you see a person doing a thing like they're in the kitchen mm-hmm. or they're taking a book off a shelf or something and then... I just, I just lose myself in that. And I'm like, yes. there's a story. You were a child once. Have you killed somebody? <laughs> did you write a book? Who are you? What yeah. are you doing? What are you cooking? Do you eat, like, did you learn to cook? Do you hate cooking? Do you... And there's just a whole landscape there which fascinates me. So I always want to hear those stories. And I feel like being an imperfect human being and being kind of not really able to do as much as I would like to do to in a way mitigate my privilege or the the luck that I've had to mitigate that for other people. I don't know how to... Like when I was 19, I wanted to save the world. And now that I'm older, I understand that that is an arrogant position in a way. And all I can do is do the best I can within my sphere and hope that that ripples outwards. And that what I put in the world is better than... Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, what what you realise, I think, is not directly fucking the world as yeah. as hard as you could and being aware of when you yeah. are and trying not to. That's yeah. the new actual saving the world, it's like, isn't yeah, it, really? It's just put some... Leave the world a better place than yeah. you found it, yeah. if you can. Yeah. And I feel I'll never do enough of that. I don't yeah. think any of us will, really. No. And so so I always want to hear from other people. I want their perspective. I want I want to know what that experience is. I want to feel it. And it's it's great when people tell you this. I I worked with an organization in the UK quite a lot called uh, Refugee Tales. And uh, it was started by this amazing woman called Anna Pinkers. She started going into Gatwick Detention Center where people are detained indefinitely. We're the only country in Europe that does that, the UK, Mm. which is unspeakable that we should do it. So there are people who are detained in these little cells um, that are made in an airport really were created for people who've come in on the wrong visa and will be sent out on the next flight. So they'll stay overnight. And the people who've been there the longest for nine years, they have no idea what's going on. There's no end date to that detention. So she started a sort of charitable group of people who would go and talk to these people, Mm. try and help them, advocate for them. And out of it came Refugee Tales, which is a, a walk that is done every summer. And it follows sort of the Canterbury Tales. 
and then every place that they stop they have a performance in the evening and the performance includes some music some uh, some stories and the stories are told by refugees so they, but but they're set in this format of so there's like the lorry driver's tale the lawyer's tale the doctor's tale the child's tale and they've told it to somebody who's made it into a story and you know written mm. it properly mm. written it up and then somebody reads the story and now they have three books worth of those stories and it's absolutely fascinating and i i you would have to be morally vacuous and a shell to not read those stories and find your humanity in them because they're just they're just people who are mm. ordinary people with these extraordinary circumstances beyond their control and they're they're human people some of them are assholes like one of the guys that i met at the uh detention center when i went and i sat with him for half an hour and i was talking to him he was so sexist he was just like pushing all my buttons mm. but in that moment what i was very aware of was that when that conversation finished i could get up and leave and he had nowhere to go yeah. so i had all the power in that situation and i you know in a way that if i'd met him in a pub i would have torn strips off him i was not able to do that so i i couldn't not challenge him but i had to do it in a way that that didn't take away his power or humiliate him or put him in a position of like just a horrible position because he had nowhere to go mm. he couldn't hit back at me um and that was that was startling and fascinating and kind of also humbling in a way of going wow this is just it's really but for the but for circumstances but for the mm. grace of the life that i accidentally was born into this absolutely could be me it could be any of us but for the grace time. of ignoring the karengo <laughs> <laughs> um yeah it's amazing that isn't it? it you 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 come across these people that are so horrific or the story that they're telling you in that moment is so horrific that it's almost profound yeah and certainly your response to it can be but they're almost they almost transcend their stupidity yeah almost you know but i think also there was a there's a story i heard about you know there was a time david cameron who was the uk prime minister mm. there was this big scandal about the fact that when he was in university he fucked a pig's dead pig's head yes. or something it was like oh yes very disgusting very funny but at the same time there was a story circulating that one of the things that they did and it's been uh, confirmed by other people is that to be part of that club you had to take a 50 pound note and burn it in front of a homeless person and to me that is so many more levels of ob- ob- obscene yes compared to the dead pig thing yeah because that is like that is going to a human being in dire straits and just spitting in their face like but the reason they do that kind of thing in these kind of public schools is because they are creating the future leaders yes. and they need to dehumanize them yeah give them teach them psychopathic traits yeah they basically. need to teach them to discount certain human yeah. beings yeah and make that okay but how, what do you do with that as a human being at some point in your life surely you will turn around and question that and go who am i or maybe you don't maybe you just you Rupert Murdoch and you get to the end of your life and you go I did well here's my legacy well done you know well the pursuit of power is still so strong in so many people isn't it the and the the idea of power as status right yeah power this power and legacy as as status and status as being the mark of power rather than power being 
any kind of beautiful human philosophy that you develop or power being any kind of yeah charming story you put out into the world that that's not power to a lot of people power is only marked on but also doesn't it come from the emptiness of knowing that we actually don't have legacy that human beings are finite mm. Mm. and that one day we'll be dead so all mm. this need need to kind of go oh i want to leave my mark i want to leave my mm. mark in a way that people will talk about me a hundred years from now mm. There's something so sad about that. Yeah, thing. that's the ultimate it's e- so egocentric sad. sadness, isn't it? But why why would you think that that has more value than being doing something in the moment that you're in that means that the people that you touch are better for it? Mm, mm. How is your name being spoken a hundred years from now? Yeah, because you owned a multi-million yeah, yeah, empire. Yeah. Better than that, because you'll be dead. You won't be able to experience the love that comes back to you or the the fullness of that. What is the point of that? I would much rather... Well, obviously, I would much rather... That's why I'm not powerful or rich. But I just... I find such a sadness, an existential sadness in that for yeah. those people who find... who look for that. Who look for that external validation in that way. Mm-hmm, totally. It's I mean, so I know some people that end up with their name on a on a plaque on a park bench have actually done some really kind and nice yeah. things but still <clears throat> you know what do we do if we if we read and the name let alone remember it yeah we basically put our ass right next to it and smother it with our back the next minute don't but we? it's also like, that that's like, no, no, that story of there's a little plaque that oh who was that person we might learn something about that yeah 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 go, or, you know, this couple, they always sat at this... Yeah, I, lo- I love reading those. I love that. Same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but also, it'll only live as long as I live. Like, we right. live as long as the stories that yeah. people who love about us tell, right? Yeah. And that's good enough. That's good enough. But to have... To be memorialised is lovely, but I'm happy to be memorialised for a finite amount of time for something very specific that I did for one person. I don't mm. mind. What... There was a lovely moment last week when I got an email from somebody from my website who said, uh, oh, you don't know us, but we've seen all your shows in Brighton and Edinburgh and we're in Wellington on holiday. Are you performing in the Fringe? Wow. And I emailed them back and I said, I'm not performing, but I'm going to see these shows. Do you want to join any of these shows? So we went out for a show together and then we went and had a drink and everything. And they said, oh, you know, it's so nice of you to reply to the email and stuff. And I went, but why wouldn't I? What a fabulous, beautiful connection to make that you've seen my shows 11,000 miles away and it's occurred to you that I'm here and you want to meet up with how great is that Mm -hmm. and we had a lovely evening I took them to see a show they wouldn't normally have seen and they were like oh but we really enjoyed it so thank you for that and great there's a moment of human connection which was brilliant I love it isn't that what uh, most of us are actually after right yeah I hope so you'd hope yeah yeah you'd hope you'd hope that that's what would fulfill you but also you know, there's a part of me that goes, well, that's what fulfills me. If what fulfills you is having 12 houses and five cars, you know what? Go for it. Yeah. Except don't go for it till everybody has universal health care and a level playing field and proper education and all of that. Once everybody has that, then you can have your billions. Mm. Until that point, I'm going to resent that you have those seven houses when you don't live in all of them while there are people homeless. You know? Yeah. So that's my kind of thing. But Did you see the movie Parasite? I haven't seen it yet. Uh, I've heard good things. Yeah, well, I won't spoil it for you, okay. but I just I just saw it recently and um, very recently, and I was um, there's many things that are great about it, but I think one of the things, and I'm sure lots of people have already spoken to this, but 
yeah, the the way it captures the disparity. Yeah. And and what that does to a person. Yeah. You know, the the circles that people yeah. operate in yeah. when they're put in circles, you know, yeah. and, and and the different levels of interpersonal skills they have. Yeah. It's that even outside of it being a, a, a great suspenseful existential horror. Yeah. It 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 almost had this great social documentary yeah. aspect to it that I thought was probably the most powerful thing about it. I can't wait to see it. I'm gonna. I'm definitely gonna see it. I've heard so many good things. I think there's all. You know, I feel like. So when we say like, oh, you know, have the death penalty, do this, do that, mm. and it's not that the people who have done those things are unspeakable. They are. I don't really care about them. If somebody is a you know pedophile who killed fifteen children, I don't care if you kill him, but I care what it does to the person who has to do the killing, and I care what it does to us when we decide to become killers, mm. whether the reason is good or not, when we start to do that, we start to degrade ourselves. So in a weird sort of way, my concern isn't for the bad people, it's for the good people. Like, don't don't go down that road mm-hmm. because you can't come back from it. And that's the same thing that happens in those circles is like, you may have everything you want materially and whatever maybe you have every you have a loving family as well you've got everything is perfect but your inhumanity to somebody else mm. will also bleed onto you so if for no other reason have a care for yourself when you behave like that to other people you know that at least have some self-interest go for it do mm. it with self-interest if not mm-hmm. if i can't go to your you know empathy or your social conscience do it for your own self-interest that you don't become inhumane because it's so easy to do that yeah yeah now there's a um a tremendous amount of self-interest in being on stage yeah um which is fine of course (laughs) but um to use another i guess buzz term where does the self-care come from for you as someone that experiences the dopamine hits and (laughs) other highs and then lows of performance so it's interesting. So there is, a, yeah, there's that thing of going, oh, this is my, you know, I'm here, I control the stage, I control the audience. I, it, there's a huge ego buzz in that and a, a kick. And, I, you know, you do the thing you love. You do the mm. thing you're good at, you do the thing you love. Fair enough, go for it. I don't think we ever, any of us do things completely altruistically. Whatever you do, you do because it gives you something. Yeah. And that's absolutely fine. So the buzz is great. The lows are sort of, what are the lows? I haven't really felt lows as such because mm-hmm. if you have a bad gig or somebody doesn't like what you do, so what? It's fine. I'm not invested in people liking me or loving everything I do. I know that the kind of stuff I do is not going to be for everybody. Sure. And nor does it have to but be. But is there a pining or a, a malaise or something when you're between projects, when you're not doing, you know, when the regularity of work is not there? Outside of any kind of financial concern, because I think we've addressed that yeah. fa- fairly enough, and you, and, you, and you seem kind of similarly placed to me with regard to that, that I don't do it for that. Yeah. Um, but, but, but also with the understanding that food's got to make it onto the table. Yes, but also with the understanding we're in the privileged position yes. of being able to go, ah, I don't care about the money. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Because that's we have right. a basic level of comfort yeah, that allows right. us to that's do that. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do in between. I get antsy. I get yeah. very uh, antsy, which so I, which is why I do lots of different things as well. Yeah, yeah. So that um, and 
I Berkeley quite a lot in my head and mm. I do this doodling, which becomes insane. Oh, yeah, I was <laughs> going to ask you about that. It's because it's amazing. So, on your website, this is a hard thing to put across in a podcast because it's a visual element, <laughs> but on your website, which I'll put a link to so people can go and check out, is you do these amazing doodles. You call them doodling, but they, they are. are I call it extreme doodling. Yeah. It's really, I just start with I need to empty my head a little bit. So, there's two things I do I do the doodlings, which turn into yeah. these weird pictures. But I also make floor plans for ideal flats. Right. Yeah. I have yeah. like 150 yeah. of those. It's yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> and they're so stupid because obviously if you were, if I was actually building something, mm. you build it in its location, right? Yes. You build yeah, it for yeah, what yeah. it is. Yeah. But in terms of going, oh, I know what I want in a dwelling. <laughs> I would be able to give that to an architect and go, build me something like this. And it would be amazing. And my, I mean, people laugh at me, all the kids laugh at me all the time, but I love it. I, there's something about the emptying of the mind and being able to do that like I can yeah. do a doodle for six or seven hours yes they stri- uh, I, they strike me I'm trying to work out how to describe them I mean extreme doodling is good and gives people some <laughs> s- some idea into the into the focus because they're very um, what's the word like tessellations you know they're very I don't know like what they are. there's there's recurring patterns yes. that you can and meticulous level of detail in and around something, but I but I would imagine they don't start with the focus of this is the meticulous detail I'm going for, but sometimes then that, that evolves yeah. as you're doing it. I don't even know what I mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sometimes. Hence the doodling. It, yeah, 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 that's just, right. Like, yeah. It, but it's an emptying of... Yeah, it's an emptying of my brain. Mm. Because there are times when I'm given to, as I guess most of us are, I'm given to going, oh, why can't I just... Why can't this happen for me? And why can't that happen for me? And if only this. And I can fall into a sort of pattern of um, sort of being unhappy with with life in mm. general. It doesn't last very long because it's very boring. Mm. And it's very boring to deal with it. So it, it maybe lasts a, a day or two sometimes. I think the longest has been a few days. Mm-hmm. But always also in that... And, I, and sometimes I've learned to let myself go through it and just go, oh, you poor thing, you haven't got anything. Oh, you poor thing, you haven't got this thing you wanted and that thing you wanted. And then there's the other part of me that's going, you have everything that is important. Mm. Stop whining and get on with it. And that's absolutely true. But also sometimes you just need to whine a little bit and get in the same way that you need to get the darkness out of your system sometimes sometimes you're feeling whiny and the best thing to do is to isolate yourself from other human beings so that you don't make them suffer your bullshit and get it out of your system and I do that by doodling I do that by singing loudly in my front room or whatever it may be to get and and also talking to friends about like today Mm. I'm having this kind of day and I'm feeling a bit shitty and I'm surrounded by incredibly loving fantastic people who will say oh you shouldn't be a bit will bake me a cake mm. but also tell me to get the fuck over myself <laughs> yeah which yeah. is also what you need you know yes. um so i've been very lucky in that and i do look i i do believe that my life has been very blessed in many ways and i've been incredibly lucky i've been privileged i'm doing the things that i love so there's really no reason for me to be miserable about anything so I have to ask this question, I get, because I, I'm, um, I'm, I'm forever interested in it because I'm a reviewer, or that's one of the components of what I do. But that's probably how I'm described by people if they're going to describe me in any kind way. It's usually a lot worse than that. But, but um, you, you've talked about you know not being too worried about what people think. 
about oh, a big part of the work that you do on some level is for yourself. Yeah. But do you read reviews? Have you had reviews that have hurt? Have you had reviews that you've taken something from? Or do you, you know, are the reviews not for you? I don't think the review is for yeah. me. The review is for the audience. But that won't stop you seeing them. Oh, no, because I'll absolutely yeah, read yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I have a... Firstly, a review is one person's opinion, mm -hmm. right? And there'll be certain reviewers that I'm more in tune with because I like the same yeah, things yeah, that they like. Yeah. So I kind of want them to like what I'm doing. Yeah. That would be nice. Yeah. So if I can get something out of a review that... If it's a criticism, I like to have a look at it and go, oh, I can see how that came about. I may not agree with it and I may not change anything. Mm -hmm. But it's always interesting to me. The mm -hmm. critical aspect is interesting to me. The reviews that I hate are the reviews that are constructed as a synopsis of the show and give away the best punchlines. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, you don't know how to write. You're not doing your job properly. And that must be really frustrating with... Um, it's irritating. With solo shows in yeah. particular. It's very where, irritating. You know. But also I'm like, well... It's there. It's mm, fine. Mm. So you money, can't stop it. You can't stop it. And it's none of my business to stop it. Yeah. When you make a piece of art, you put it out there, then it belongs to other people. Yeah. Get over it. Yeah. And what I take from reviews is, from the good reviews, I take the stars and the good quotes to put on my next poster. Mm. It's a marketing exercise. Mm -hmm. From the bad reviews, I haven't had terrible reviews really, but I've had some reviews which have been critical. Or well, There was one review that said, that started by going, Samina Zara is a, is a middle-aged woman with short hair. And I was like, well, what, what is that? That has nothing to do with my show. So that was quite hilarious. That's fulfilling a word count. <laughs> I know. I don't know what it was. So that makes me laugh. Mm. And then if, there are, if there's something that I can take from a review in terms of criticism to go, well, that's an interesting thing to put somewhere else. Mm -hmm. I'll take that. Yeah. But I don't dwell on them. No. I don't dwell on the good ones and I don't dwell on the bad ones. It's like, they're there. It's mm. fine. Whatever. Um... There's no point to it. Like, yeah, I think it's very disingenuous of people these days to say, I don't read reviews, because I feel like, and I'm not saying this to kind of suggest there's any power in what I do or have done as a reviewer, I just know, and I know from my own experience, that you might try and avoid it. Someone's going to show it under your yeah. nose. So read it and move yeah. on, as you're saying. Like, take take what you want from it or whatever. Don't dwell on it. But to say, I don't read them, it's basically an impossibility. Yeah, I think there's some people who don't read it while the show is on. Sure. Because they don't want to yeah. be distracted by it. But, that's but they a, will get to and it that's a that's basically a, a, a wider don't log in. Yeah. Like that's what yeah, yeah. that requires. Yeah. And that's I totally understand how you'd come at that. I think reviewers do have some power, especially when you're new and you haven't built your audience. Mm -hmm. And I think they need to be responsible about that because everyone will find an audience somewhere. So when if you're making criticisms or if you can, like again with the you know the thing of putting people in a group of of trying to highlight what is good about somebody's mm. practice and and being able to say well this person's very new so they're fumbling with this but actually what's great is this because if you haven't yet built your audience a bad review can kill your show and that can be very demoralizing. Yeah, they've got to be bad for. Um, yeah, theatre runs and, yeah. you know, yeah, sh shows that have... Because, I mean, I, I started off and I still go and review a lot of music kicks. Well, they happen in one night. By the time the review's... You're not Come really out, damning yeah. anything. By the time the review's out, the actors usually left the city. Yeah. Um, but you go and review a show that's on yeah. Bats or Circle or somewhere and it's on for a month. Yeah. It could or, have some impact. Or yeah. Edinburgh Fringe, for yes, example. Yes, yeah. Those are solo shows that are on for a month. So there's a... Yeah. There's a publication... And in then travelling from there, quite yes. like it's yeah. launch, a launching pad. Yeah. 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 
And then if they're going to producers worldwide to tour and then the producer Googles them and a, and a mm. one-star review comes up, that's, mm -hmm. that can be difficult. Mm. So there is a publication, I can't remember the name of the publication, but they have a policy that if they see something and they're going to give it less than a three-star review, they don't publish it. But they give the review to the artist. So they can the artist can read what criticisms wow. they had, that's but they won't publish it. Wow. Because their whole point is to encourage good mm, art so mm. if the art is bad they don't want to take it out personally so they're saying here here's why you didn't feature yeah here's why yeah. you didn't feature here's why you're what not we thought of your yeah. show but we're not going to put it out there wow which i think is amazing it's interesting it's interesting i don't know how i feel about that well it's also because <laughs> a lot of the people that they're reviewing are yeah. doing first time shows yeah no no i get it and they're in this huge marketplace of like yes yeah, so i was going to say it's the luxury of resources because yeah. presumably yeah. the writer still gets paid or whatever. No, I think all the writers are... Um, right, they're uh, voluntary. They're voluntary. Yeah, okay. they're voluntary. But it's the policy of the, the publication mm. is to go, mm. we want to promote French shows, so we promote the ones we think yeah, are Yeah, well, good. then that's okay. Yeah, and yeah, that's yeah. it. We're yeah. not going to diss the ones we think yeah. are bad. We're going to mm. give them another chance. And I kind of like that ethic, especially in a fringe festival. Yeah, I understand it. Yeah. I sort of come from the point of view of, um, you know, your... You only get to, you know, that thing you were saying of you have reviewers that you are aligned with. Yeah. Well, the way you align yourself with a reviewer can be through understanding what they hate as much as what they oh, like. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. So I guess that's my problem with that. But I, but I totally, yeah, see that in that capacity. I think in that context. Yeah, in that context. Just in that very specific context. Uh, absolutely. It works. It's, it's, and, I, and I like the idea that... The artist's given a very real reason for oh, why they didn't yeah. feature. Hey, because you we... want feedback, yeah, especially for right. young art, young artists. Yeah. You need the feedback. Mm. So I also have a policy where I basically don't anymore um, invite reviewers to my shows. Yeah, because I'm not interested. Because I have mm -hmm. enough of an audience that there's word of yeah, mouth. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll do the advertising and stuff, and they're very welcome to come mm. and buy a ticket and come. Mm -hmm. There are some publications that I actively discourage from mm -hmm. coming to mind. I can't stop them buying a ticket. Mm. They're absolutely bad. So you will say no if you get a request for yeah, a review no. ticket from someone. Yeah. I um, mean, not from everyone. No, 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 but I mean... Be like, yeah, come. No, that's right, but you're happy to go, no. Yeah, I'm like, we you're not mine. We don't deal with you. <laughs> we don't deal with you. Yeah, okay. So in the UK, it's publications yeah. like the Daily Mail or the yeah. Sun or yeah. stuff like that, yeah. Yeah. Sunday and things. And um, What about here? Not so much. I haven't had any yeah, here because yeah. there's like five reviewers here. Yeah, anyway. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I haven't. And they're not getting paid, and they're you know. Yeah, I don't mind. They're not here doing it. It's different. It's yeah, different. It it's different. different. And I there isn't that really savage care. culture here yeah. with reviewers. I mean, I think also those particular publications that I'm talking about in the UK are mm. publications that I have political issue with sure. for the way in which they yeah, behave. Sure. So that's why I buy. Yeah, you don't want to be aligned with them. Writing. Like yeah. even, even, yeah. even I just don't want yeah. anything to do with it. Yeah. No, I don't care if the Daily Mail is the most. I'm not going to do a feature in the Mail on Sunday. It's just yeah. Not yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's fine. But by and large, I'm like, and mostly if people say, ah, oh, and if, especially if they're volunteering as a reviewer and they don't have mm. money behind them, mm. I'm like, and they go, we really want to see your show. I'm like, fine, come. Yeah. You and you don't even have to write a review if you don't really want yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And. Quite often with artists, I have a, a, a rule that I picked up from a comedy club that I've worked in uh, a lot in the UK. I love them. They're called Femmes of Colour. Fuck it up, comedy club. Fuck <laughs> it up. And they have a policy which is no lack of fun for lack of funds. Mm. And I really like that. Mm. And I will try and adhere to it as much as I can if people will say to me, you know, I, I really can't afford it or can we get a two for one or whatever. I'll be like, yeah, 
just just slide in. I'm never that sold out. I'm not that, you know, I don't have that level of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People are clamoring for my tickets. But yeah. even if they were, I don't care. I just do it in a slightly bigger venue and let people come. But you can't comp everyone either as well. Like no, absolutely not. I have, there is a, yeah. It's an honour system, isn't it? Yeah, it's like right. if you can afford to buy a ticket, buy a freaking ticket. If you're in full-time employment... And I have a lot of friends, actually, who I would absolutely comp in, but they insist on buying tickets to my yeah, shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'd be like, okay, at least take the and friends and family discount. I've had that but thing over the last couple of years where, you know, I don't I don't work as a full-time reviewer for anyone. I do it for myself. I don't get paid. Um, but I'm interested in shows, and I will still buy tickets to shows. Yeah. But because it's so ingrained in me, it's a bit like you doing your doodling or whatever. Like, when I go to a show, I've often thought over the last couple of years... I, you know, I paid for that ticket. Um, I should just enjoy that show, and I yeah. I will just... But I'll get home, and it, you know, so I have this, you know, that's my niggle. I get home, and I might leave it that night, but I guarantee the next morning I'll get up at 5 o'clock, and I'll just be like, yep, frantically. Right away, right away. This is just how I... Pro- it's just yeah. how I... Pro- and it's not, it's not me thinking, I have an audience that needs to know. I don't. I yeah. never know whether I've got an audience or not, and I've never written for an audience as such like with yeah. that in my mind I recognise when you're published in a paper or you have a website and you get emails from people you do have an audience yeah. just like you're saying you don't do it for an audience but you do yeah, yeah you of course you, you do I wouldn't be yeah, doing anything without right. an audience that's I'd right. be shouting in an empty room that's right um, but yeah so I'll still go in and, <laughs> and I've written passionately about shows that I've paid money to see yeah. and then I've also had to write man, I was disappointed in this, you yeah. know, and here's why kind of thing. And it's just, that's just me and mm. me being used to processing things that way. But it's funny, every now and then I think, you know what, I should give myself the night off. I paid for this <laughs> ticket, I should just go and enjoy just, it. But You can't do it. Well, it's part of the enjoyment is actually unpacking it. Yeah, yeah. 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 And finding where, how it, where it's been. Yeah, just thinking the, about it. The just, Jenga of it, how yeah. it's slotted together. Yeah, yeah. What did, and just putting it on the record, like the record, my record, yeah. like... Which like is writing a diary, probably. Yeah, basically, almost. that's yeah. it. I was going to say it's not about it's not about legacy. Yeah. Um, to go back to that, it's just about um, these are the these are the steps I'm taking mm. to catalogue the things that have interested me and what I've done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fun. Yeah. It's lovely. We play for a living, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So should we finish by giving the the play another plug? Yes, like, let's, let's, let's do that. Yeah. So where okay, so it's um it's called White Men. Yep. And, and it features it, no white men in its cast. No, at all. Uh, we do have... A de- our designer is a white man and right. he's brilliant. But on the stage, we're going stage, to see women per- yes. portraying the white men. And, yep. and it's a kind of a clownish, yeah. satirising... And it's a range of it women as fantastic. well in terms of yeah. ethnicity, background, and, yeah. experience, yeah. all of that. It's yeah. fantastic. It's lovely. Yeah. Um, it's on from the 8th to the 18th of April at yep. Bats. Yep. Uh, as I said before, and I'll say it again, 11th is a pay-what-you-can night, so mm-hmm. book those tickets now. Um, I think it'll sell out pretty soon. And look out for it on... I mean, go to Red Scare and follow them on Facebook and yeah. social medias and stuff, because they'll, they'll. we took little videos. We did the photo shoot yeah, for the they're poster. Very, they're very good at how they dr- drop out their marketing. Yeah, I so love it. it's great. It's lovely. Yeah. And, you, and you'll see little you know clips of the characters mm. and stuff like that, so look out for that. And, mm. I reckon it'll, I'm hoping it'll do well, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to bringing it to Wellington. Lovely Wellington. Mm. Well, it's been a great pleasure um, meeting you and chatting with you about, about not just your 
your life, but well, it, well, it is your life because it's all your experience that you bring to these topics. But it was nice to sort of chat about some of the these topics that do bug us when, yeah. we're, when we're involved in the arts because they because well, they infiltrate your psyche. Yeah, yeah, they do. They do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Sunny paper on a Saturday night Cats in the sun